I join with all in acknowledging the greatness of President S. Dilworth Young and his associates of the First Council of 70. I am humbled and honored to be invited to serve in that council and in the First Quorum as well. It has been interesting to return to this country from South America and see the billboards and signs memorializing a revolution in this country which happened 200 years ago. In the world, I think we need less revolutions and more revelations. In my opinion, the greatest change in South America is a spiritual revolution which is coming about as the result of the influence of this church and of the temple now under construction in Sao Paulo, all within the counsel of Paul to the Ephesians for the perfecting of the saints in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. There is a great humility and timidity in my soul as I presume to speak about coming to a personal knowledge of Jesus Christ, the Redeemer of the world and the Son of God. Recently in South America, a seasoned group of outstanding missionaries asked, What is the greatest need in the world? One wisely responded, is not the greatest need in all of the world for every person to have a personal, ongoing, daily, continuing relationship with the Savior. Having such a relationship can unchain the divinity within us, and nothing can make a greater difference in our lives as we come to know and understand our divine relationship with God. We should earnestly seek not ju just to know about the Master, but strive as He invited to be one with Him, to be strengthened with might by His Spirit in the inner man. We may not feel a closeness with Him because we think of Him as being far away, or our relationship may not be sanctifying because we do not think of Him as a real person. How can we receive the personal blessing of the Master's divine and exalting influence in our own lives? Since our own feelings are sacred to us and cannot be disputed by others, let us begin with those quiet assurances which occasionally can come to all of us and which we know are true. We cannot always prove these verities to others, yet they come as a form of knowledge. Is this part of the divine which ferments within us, reaching to its source? Is it not like a personal witness of truth flowing through the thin curtain which separates this world from another? Is there not a yearning to understand in your mind what is in your heart, a feeling about which you cannot give utterance because it is so unspeakably personal? And the Master said that this quiet reality can speak peace to your mind concerning the matter. May I suggest five beginning essential measures which will greatly clear the channel for a daily flow of living water from the very source of the spring, even the Redeemer himself. First, a daily communion involving prayer. A fervent, sincere prayer is a two-way communication which will do much to bring his spirit flowing like healing water to help with the trials, hardships, aches, and pains we all face. What is the quality of our secret prayers when only he listens? 
As we pray, we should think of him as being close by, full of knowledge, of understanding, love, and compassion, the essence of power, and as having great expectations from each of us. Second, a daily selfless service to another. The followers of the Divine Christ have to be weighed on the scales of what their actions are rather than on solemn professions of belief. The true measure is found in Matthew. Inasmuch as ye have done it unto the least of these, ye have done it unto me. A wise man observed, the man who lives by himself and for himself is apt to be corrupted by the company he keeps. Third, a daily striving for an increased obedience and perfection in our lives. What manner of men ought ye to be? Verily I say unto you, even as I am, said the Savior, because of the perfect atonement of Jesus, just man may be made perfect. Fourth, a daily acknowledgment of his divinity. To have a daily personal relationship with the Master, we must be his disciples. For how knoweth a man the Master he has not served, and who is a stranger unto him, and is far from the thoughts and intents of his heart? Fifth, a daily study of the scriptures. President Kimball has said, I find that when I get casual in my relationships with the divinity, and when it seems that no divine ear is listening and no divine voice is speaking, that I am far, far away. If I immerse myself in the scriptures, the distance narrows and the spirituality returns. For those who have honest doubts, let us hear what eyewitnesses had to say about Jesus of Nazareth. The ancient apostles were there. They saw it all. They participated. No one is more worthy of belief than they, said Peter. For we have not followed cunningly devised fables when we made known unto you the power and coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty, said John. For we have heard him ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. Modern-day witnesses Joseph Smith and Sidney Rigdon declared, for we saw him even on the right hand of God, and we heard the voice bearing record that he is the only begotten of the Father. Peter counsels us to be partakers of the divine nature. The influence and teaching of the Messiah should have a transcendence over all other interests and concerns in our lives. We must constantly be reaching upward for the riches of eternity, for the kingdom of God is within us. Speaking through the Doctrine and Covenants, God promises that you may be told in your minds and in your hearts of whatsoever you ask by the Holy Ghost. By sanctifying yourselves, the day will come when he will unveil his face to you. If your eye be single to his glory, your whole bodies shall be filled with light, and there shall be no darkness in you. And that body which is filled with light comprehendeth all things. In the many trials of life, when we feel abandoned, when sorrow, sin, disappointment, and failure and weakness make us less than we should ever be, there can come the healing salve of the unreserved love in the grace of God. It is a love that forgives and forgets, a love that lifts and blesses. It is a love that sustains a new beginning on a higher level, 
and thereby continues from grace to grace. President Kimball has said, The spiritual knowledge of truth is the electric light illuminating the cavern, the wind and the sun dissipating the fog. It is the mansion on the hill replacing the shack in the marshes, the harvester shelving the sickle in the cradle. It is the rich kernels of corn instead of the husks. It is much more than all else. During the years of my life, and often in my present calling, and especially during a recent Gethsemane, I have gone, many, gone to my knees with a humble spirit to the only place I could for help. I often went in agony of spirit, earnestly pleading with God to sustain me in a work that I have come to appreciate more than life itself. I have on occasion felt the terrible aloneness of the wounds of the heart, of the sweet agony, the buffetings of Satan, and the encircling warm comfort of the spirit of the Master. I have also felt the crushing burden, the self-doubts of inadequacy and unworthiness, the fleeting feeling of being forsaken, then of being reinforced a hundredfold. I have climbed the spiritual Mount Sinai dozens of times seeking to communicate and receive instructions. It has been as though I have struggled up an almost real Mount of Transfiguration and upon occasion felt great strength and power in the presence of the Divine. A special sacred feeling has been a sustaining influence and often a close companion. It is my testimony that we are facing difficult times. We must be courageously obedient. My witness is that we will be called upon to prove our spiritual stamina, for the days ahead will be filled with affliction and difficulty. But with the assuring comfort of a personal relationship with the Savior, we will be given the cal a calming courage. From the divine so near, we will receive the quiet assurance, My son, peace be unto thy soul, Thine adversity and thine affliction shall be but a small moment, and then if thou endure it well, God shall exalt thee on high. Thou shalt triumph over all thy foes. As I come to a new calling, I recognize that I am a very ordinary man. Yet I gratefully acknowledge one special gift. I have a certain knowledge that Jesus of Nazareth is our divine Savior. I know that he lives. From my earliest recollection, I have had a sure perception of this. As long as I have lived, I have had a simple faith that has never doubted. I have not always understood. Yet still I have known through a knowledge that is so sacred to me that I cannot give utterance to it. I know and I testify with an absolute awareness in every fiber and innermost recess of my being that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the divine Redeemer, and the Son of God. May we be obedient to his wish. Come unto me, thy Savior. I pray humbly in his holy and sacred name. Amen. I feel very honored, brothers and sisters, in having been invited to share my testimony and add it to those of all my brethren that have been given through this session and the previous sessions of this conference because 
with all my heart and soul, I know this is the Lord's work, that Jesus Christ is the Redeemer of the world, the head of his church, that Joseph Smith was his prophet for the establishment of his kingdom here upon this earth in the latter days to prepare the way for his second coming. During the summer months, the vacation period, I had to spend a few weeks at home with a little ailment. Gave me an opportunity to read a few books, and I read uh, my patriarchal blessing and the blessings that I'd received from presidents of the church when I was set apart as mission president twice, when I was set apart as the presiding bishop of the church, and last of all, when President David O. McKay, assisted by his counselors and the members of the Quorum of the Twelve, laid their hands upon my head 24 years ago last April in the Holy Temple and ordained me an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in the blessing, President McKay gave me a charge that I should be a witness of him and that I should bear witness of his divine calling and the divine calling of his prophet Joseph Smith and of the truths of the restored gospel. And my, the joy I've had in these 24 and a half years trying to respond and be obedient to the charge that President McKay gave me upon that occasion. And I've had great joy and happiness therein. I've uh, come to feel the meaning of the words of the prophet Nephi when he said, The Lord hath blessed me with his love even to the consuming of my flesh. Have you ever felt that when you have goose flesh all over by the power of the Spirit? Then I think of the words of the Apostle Paul when he said, Those who have tasted of the powers of the world to come and then fall away, it were better for them that they had never been born. And there's no re re forgiveness for them. Now, from that I get the, the, under, the feeling, as Paul expressed it, that even here in mortality, we can taste of the powers of the world to come. I have many rich friends. I've never seen any joys or tears of joy flow from their eyes because of anything they could purchase with their money. But I've seen plenty of tears of joy from the eyes of the humble of this earth and the mission field and testimony meetings and, and his servants under the influence and power of the Spirit of God till I know that it is real. When I was a young boy in a little country town, I can remember our school, Sunday school teacher giving us the words of John the Baptist when he said that he baptized with water for the forgiveness of sins, but he said, One mightier than I will come, whose shoe latchets I am not worthy to unloose and he shall baptize you with fire and with the Holy Ghost. And I can imagine what that fire meant when I was a boy. But I've lived long enough to know 
I've been lifted beyond my own natural abilities under the influence and power of the Spirit of the Lord as I've borne witness of this truth of this gospel upon many occasions until it's a very part of my very being, and I like to give you that testimony here today. Now, I have, a, I have in mind that I'd like to say a few words today about a statement of the Apostle Paul. He said, I fear lest by any means your mind should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. And I tell you, throughout the world, the minds of men have been corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ, and they have taught the commandments of men rather than the simple truths revealed in the Lord's holy word. I think of the words of Isaiah. He said, Because they have transgressed the law and changed the ordinances and broken the everlasting covenant, therefore hath the curse devoured the earth. So, um, uh, and then I think also of the experience when um, Emperor Constantine called the, the Nicaea Council, held way back in 325 A.D., when 318 bishops spent four weeks in discussion and debate over the um, individuality, the divinity and personality of Jesus Christ and God. Think of that. Their minds were confused and uh, corrupted. Or if they would have followed the simple teachings of the scriptures, there'd have been no need of their spending four weeks in debate to decide that question. Thank the Lord that through the restoration of the gospel, those simple truths are a part of us and of our great work, and our minds are not corrupted. Give me another little illustration of what I mean. When I was doing missionary work back in Massachusetts some years ago, and it was near the uh, Easter, uh, Easter time, I um, had a conversation in the home of a retired minister, and I asked him if he would explain to me his concept of the deity. And he told me what's the universal feeling in the teachings in the churches that he believed that the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost were one God, but a spiritual God, not a physical God, that there's an influence that permeated the world and the earth and was in the flowers and the trees and so forth. And um, then um, I uh, said, well, what are they celebrating Easter for? And he said, the resurrection of Christ. And I said, and just what do you mean by that? Did his spirit come back and take possession of his body? when the stone was rolled away and he arose and when the women came to the sepulcher, there sat a, an angel, one at the foot and one at the head, and they, came, and they, they said, Oh, I uh, seek ye the living among the dead. He is not the, here, he is risen. And then you remember how many times he appeared to the twelve and um, 
then he uh, had them feel the prints in his hands and the wounds in his the wound in his side and he said feel me for a spirit hath not flesh and bone as you see me have and then he took fish and honeycomb and ate with them and after spending his 40 days with his disciples then he ascended to heaven and as he went up two men in white apparel stood and said ye men of galilee why stand ye thus gazing into heaven know ye not that this same jesus which is taken from you into heaven shall again appear in like manner as you've seen him go into heaven now i said to this minister now how in the world can you believe that in a spirit rather than that personal christ that went into heaven i said did you, did you feel that he died again that he could be just an essence in the world rather than to have that very body that he took up and became the first fruits of the resurrection which is a reality and not just a spiritual rea uh, spiritual resurrection the minister thought of him he said i've never thought of it like that before now moses knew that that condition would prevail for when he went to lead the children of israel into the promised land he told them that they would not remain there long but that they would be scattered among the nations that they would worship gods made by the hands of man that could neither see nor hear nor taste nor smell now isn't that the god of the christian world today and no moses knew that that condition would prevail all that long time ago but he didn't leave it at that he said that in the latter days and we live in the latter days that if they should seek after god they should surely find him and they did what a difference between the corrupted idea of the christ compared to when stephen was stoned to death and he gazed into heaven and he saw jesus standing on the right hand of his father and how could he stand on his right side the right hand if he had no body and how could he stand if he had no feet and then compared also with the marvelous vision of the prophet joseph in this dispensation when a light descended from heaven according to his uh, testimony brighter than the noonday sun and in the midst of that glorious light were two heavenly messengers the father and the son and the father pointing to the son said this is my beloved son hear him that's the simplicity that's in christ and if the world would follow just the simple uh, things that i've referred to briefly here today how could they believe in just an essence that's everywhere present you remember what jesus said in the beatitudes among other things he said for blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see god according to the corrupted idea of the christian world today what could they hope to see when they see him if he's just a spirit everywhere present the life and the flowers would they see the flowers and the plants and the trees not so for the latter day saints we will look forward to the day when we will see him come in power and great glory and it doesn't make sense to think that he'd uh, 
discarded that body that he could be everywhere present and that he and the Father could be the same person. Well, that's one of the great truths that has come through the restoration of the gospel in these days. And I bear witness to that. And I know that he lives. He's at the head of the church. Like Paul said, that the church was built upon the foundation of apostles and prophets with Christ the Lord as the chief cornerstone. And I have the witness that he is the head of this church and that he is guiding it and directing it. And I don't see how any sane person could study what the church has accomplished since the days that he appeared with the Father and then think that it's the work of man. And um, now speaking of the prophet Joseph Smith, I want to give you a little testimony. A few years ago, when Brother John A. Widsow was alive, he gave a series of lectures entitled Around the Doctrine and Covenants in the Barrett Hall. And Sister Richards and I attended those lectures. He had Sister Inez Whitbeck there. She could read beautifully. And he'd say, now, Sister Whitbeck, read section so-and-so, and then certain verses from another section. And then he'd stand there, and he'd say, now, you college students, you college professors, could you write anything like that? He said, I wish I could. And there he'd been president of two universities and written textbooks that had been used all over the land. But uh, and this church has produced many great leaders in finance and industry and in education, but none of them have attempted to contribute what the prophet Joseph gave, although he'd scarcely seen the inside of a schoolroom. In the early days, he surrounded himself with many wise men, men who had had college training. Some of them thought that they could write revelations better than the prophet Joseph did. So the Lord gave them a test. He told them to choose, told the prophet to choose the wisest among them and let him write a revelation equal to the least of those that the Lord had given through the prophet Joseph. And if he were successful in so doing, he'd be under no condemnation if he failed to bear witness of the truth of the revelations that the Lord had given through the prophet. But none of them could do it. As I say, smart as our leaders are and have been, none of them can hope to approximate what the prophet Joseph gave. My testimony is that no man has ever lived upon the face of the earth outside of the Redeemer of the world that has given as much revealed truth to the world as the prophet Joseph Smith how anyone could read the Doctrine and Covenants and study it and think that Joseph Smith wrote it. Take just as an illustration the 76th section of the Doctrine and Covenants. We read in the Bible that Paul, he didn't say himself, but he knew a man in Christ Jesus who was caught up into the third heaven, and there can't be a third heaven without a first and a second, and such a one was caught up into paradise, and then we have a place below that, and so, uh, but, uh, but Paul was not permitted to write what he saw, nor how we should live, or what, how the Lord would judge those that would go to the heaven that he likened unto the sun, or the one likened unto the moon, 
or the one likened to the stars, as Brother Seal spoke here today. But that revelation was reserved to be revealed to the prophet of this dispensation, and it's known as the 76th section of the Doctrine and Covenants. And when the prophet received that revelation, he said it was a transcript from the records of the eternal worlds. Many of our scriptures were written long before man was upon the earth. That's why we read of Christ, the Lamb slain before the foundation of this earth. Not that he was literally slain, but in the Lord's great eternal plan, he'd offered himself and he was to give his life. Now I pray God to bless all of you. That's only a little start, but oh my, when I think of what the prophet Joseph has given us and the uh, Doctrine and Covenants, the Pearl of Great Price, the Book of Mormon, and then that marvelous testimony of the three witnesses. How could any sane person, a lover of truth, read that testimony and then not want to know whether that book is true and then read the promise in the latter part of it that if any man would read it and ask God the Eternal Father in the name of Jesus Christ, having faith that the Lord would manifest the truth of it unto him by the power of the Holy Ghost. And I bear witness to that end that it is the Word of God. This is his church. It'll triumph in the earth. And as I see these great area conferences the brethren are holding, I wouldn't be surprised if it's not far distant when great multitudes, even congregations, will join the church, for this is the only way to eternal exaltation. God bless you all, I pray, and leave you my blessing and witness in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. During his ministry here upon the earth, as the Savior taught the people, he counseled them, Search the scriptures, for in them ye think ye have eternal life, and they are they which testify of me. What do we consider to be the scriptures? One dedicated student explained, Any message, whether written or spoken, that comes from God to man by the power of the Holy Ghost is Scripture. If it is written and accepted by the Church, it becomes part of the Scriptures or standard works, and ever thereafter may be read and studied with profit. President Kimball has urged us to study the Scriptures when he suggested let us this year seek to read and understand and apply the principles and inspired counsel found within the scriptures. If we do so, we shall discover that our personal acts of righteousness will also bring personal revelation or inspiration when needed in our own lives. Presently, he recommended a daily reading of the scriptures. He taught us Testimonies need to be nourished and, uh, nourished and fed. If we're not reading the scriptures daily, our testimonies are growing thinner. Our spirituality isn't increasing in depth. Joseph Smith, although but a youth, was an earnest a student of the scriptures. 
In one of the offices in the church office building, there's a painting showing Joseph seated in a chair in his bedroom with a Bible in his hands. On such an occasion, he undoubtedly read the passage of Scripture located in James. This passage gave him the guideline he needed to answer some very grave questions that concerned him. We all know that passage. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God that giveth to all men liberally, and upbraideth not, and it shall be, be given him. Joseph Smith accepted this invitation as he had a most important decision to make. In retiring to a secluded spot on the, in the grove of trees on his father's farm, he knelt and prayed earnestly for an answer to his problem. Unexpectedly, he was visited by heaven, our Heavenly Father and His Son, the resurrected Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This dramatic visitation was the first revelation in this dispensation. The knowledge and use of the scriptures are important in our lives. A prominent church educator many years ago taught, the scriptures are signboards leading to eternal life. As Latter-day Saints, we accept the following scriptures as the standard works of the church. We, first, we have the Bible. And it consists of the Old and the New Testament, the Book of Mormon, the Doctrine and Covenants, the Pearl of Great Price, and official statements made by our leaders. Regarding the Bible, there's a misconception that the Bible is one book instead of a collection of 66 books, 39 of which comprise the Old Testament, and 27 constitute the New Testament. Now, since the books are so numerous, the period covered so great, about 2,500 years from Moses to St. John. And the books being composed by so many writers, there's a vast variety in the materials presented. The first five books of the Old Testament contain an early record of the Hebrew race and are described by Josephus and other authorities to have been written by Moses. These books are called the Pentateuch. The Book of Mormon, as we know, was translated by Joseph Smith from golden plates in the custody of the angel Moroni. This book contains a record of the Lord's dealings temporally and spiritually with the ancient peoples who dwelt in these lands of America. It also gives the beautiful account of the appearance of the resurrected Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, to the people which is most inspiring. The Doctrine and Covenants contains revelations given to Joseph Smith, the prophet, with some additions by his successors in the presidency of the Church. One addition I examined recently pointed out that certain lessons entitled Lectures on Faith, which are bound in with the Doctrine and Covenants in some of its former issues, are not included in this edition. These lessons were prepared for use in the School of the Elders, 
which is conducted in Kirtland, Ohio, during the winter of 1834 and 1835. But they were never presented to nor accepted by the Church as being otherwise than theological lessons or lectures or lessons. Now, the Pearl of Great Price presently, of course, contains a selection from the revelations, translations, and narrations of Joseph Smith, which includes, first, eight chapters known as the Book of Moses. Now, the material contained in the first chapter was revealed in June 1830. The materials in the next seven chapters were revealed in December 1830. Second is the Book of Abraham, which consists of five chapters. These were the writings of Abraham and also Joseph of Egypt. They are translated by Joseph Smith from two, uh, two rolls of papyrus that were found in coffins with four mummies and were discovered in the catacombs of Egypt by Antonio Cibolo, the celebrated French traveler in 1831. Third in the Great Price are the writings of Joseph Smith, mainly taken from his history. Then fourth, the Articles of Faith. These are from a letter that the prophet wrote to John Wentworth who is writing history of the state of New Hampshire. New scriptures have recently been added to the Pearl of Great Price. The last general conference held in April 1976, President Tanner made this announcement, quote, President Kimball has asked me to read a very important resolution for your sustaining vote. At a meeting of the Council of the First Presidency and Quorum of the Twelve held in the Salt Lake Temple on March the 25th, 1976, approval was given to add to the Pearl of Great Price the following two revelations. First, a vision of the celestial kingdom given to Joseph Smith the prophet in the Kirtland Temple on January the 21st, 1836 which deals with the salvation of those who die without a knowledge of the gospel. And second, a vision given to President Joseph F. Smith in Salt Lake City, Utah, on October the 3rd, 1918, showing the visit of the Lord Jesus Christ in the spirit world between his crucifixion and resurrection and setting forth the doctrine of the redemption of the dead. Yesterday, as we sustained the general authorities, we sustained designated ones as prophets, seers, and revelators. We firmly believe that they receive revelation from the Lord. President Lee said to us, In this day, the scriptures are purest at their source. Just as, the mountain just as the waters were purest at the mountain source, the purest word of God, and that least apt to be polluted, is that which comes from the lips of the living prophets who are set up to guide Israel in our own day and time. 
in the quotation. We should search the scriptures and ponder over the truths contained in them, for they are the words leading to eternal life. I bear solemn witness, solemn testimony that inspired men are leading the Church today. Let us hearken to their voices and obey their teachings, for which I pray in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. My dear brothers and sisters and friends, during the few moments assigned to me this afternoon, I would like to talk about the responsibility of parents in the rearing of their children. And to begin, I'd like to quote President David O. McKay as he had this to say about the responsibility of parents. It is said that to be trusted is a greater compliment than to be loved. The greatest trust that can come to a man and woman is their placing in their keeping the life of a little child. If a man who is entrusted with other people's funds defaults, whether he be a bank, municipal, or state official, he is apprehended and probably sent to prison. If a person entrusted with the government's secret discloses that secret and betrays his country, he is called a traitor. How then must parents be regarded who, through their own negligence or willful desire to indulge their selfishness, fail properly to rear their children and thereby prove untrue to the greatest trust that has been given to human beings? And then he said that among delinquent parents are these, those who quarrel in the presence of their children those who pollute the home atmosphere with vulgarity and profanity, those whose daily home life does not conform to their church pretensions, those who fail to teach obedience to their children, those who neglect to teach their children religion by saying, let them grow up and choose for themselves, thus failing in the discharge of a parental responsibility. He then asks a question and makes a suggestion. Parents, how do you measure up? Take a personal inventory and see if you are fulfilling your sacred obligations. This statement in the Doctrine and Covenant makes clear our responsibility in teaching our children the fundamentals of the gospel. Inasmuch as parents have children that teach them not to understand the doctrines of repentance, faith in Christ, the Son of the living God, and of baptism and the gift of the Holy Ghost by laying on of hands when eight years old, the sin be upon the heads of the parents, for this shall be a law unto the inhabitants of Zion. Note that this does not say the sin be upon the head of the Sunday school, the primary, or the seminary teacher, but upon the heads of the parents. In speaking on this subject on one occasion, Elder A. Theodore Tuttle made this significant statement. Parental responsibility cannot go unheeded, nor can it be shifted to daytime centers, nor to the classroom, nor to the church. Family responsibility comes by divine decree. Parents may violate this decree only at the peril of their own salvation. 
Thus it is made clear to all of us that it is the solemn obligation of every Latter-day Saint parent to do everything within his or her power to instill in their children a knowledge of the gospel and the true purpose of life. Of course, to do this, we must be converted ourselves. If we wish our children to be Latter-day Saints, then we must be Latter-day Saints. President Hugh B. Brown once said, we cannot effectively teach what we do not profoundly believe. Our lives and our teachings must not be at variance. Young parents, prepare yourselves that your children may be properly taught in the ways of the Lord. Teach them faith in the living God. Teach them to pray always and teach them to keep the laws and commandments the Lord has given us to live by. On another occasion, President Brown said, in this age of selfishness and greed, of birth control and barrenness, of easy divorce and broken homes and juvenile delinquents, in this age of cheap amusements, idleness, and lack of discipline, it is well to search for basic values to call attention to the fact that the home is the nation's most fundamental institution and that mothers are the first professors in that character-building school. End of that quotation. The home is where we learn what is right, what is good, and what is kind. It is the first school and the first church. The best way to prepare a child for a happy and righteous adult life is to strengthen him during his child life. And happy is the family where this most important trust, that of properly raising the children of that family, is their greatest concern. Equal to the responsibility we have to provide food and shelter and the necessities of life is the responsibility to set the right example for our children in all that we do. Let us remember that the parent in the home influences the behavior patterns, the habits, the opinions, and the beliefs of the children. Most behavior patterns are established early in life, and it is extremely difficult, slow task to change them later in life. There is a great message for parents in the rearing of their children in the song written by Sister Naoma Randall entitled, I Am a Child of God. I think it is one of the greatest songs we have in the church. We hear it sung all over the world as we visit the children in the junior Sunday schools. I would like to quote the lyrics of this song. I am a child of God, and he has sent me here has given me an earthly home with parents kind and dear. I am a child of God, and so my needs are great. Help me to understand his words before it grows too late. I am a child of God. Rich blessings are in store. If I but learn to do his will, I'll live with him once more. Lead me. Guide me. Walk beside me. Help me find the way. Teach me all that I must do to live with him someday. Now as a child grows, he becomes more independent. Sometimes teenagers are accused of feeling they have outgrown the need for parents. But of course, this is a time in their life when they need their parents more than ever. Today our youth are faced with tremendous challenges. And what do they need most? 
They need sound knowledge, sensible understanding, a guiding hand. They need real homes that are maintained in a clean and orderly manner. They need fathers who are really fathers, mothers who are mothers in the true sense of the word. They need more than mere progenitors or landlords. They are in need of loving, understanding parents who give fatherly and motherly care, who put their families first in their lives and consider it their fundamental and most important duty to save their own children, to so orient them and their thinking that they will not be swayed by every wind of persuasion which happens to blow in their direction. These young people are inquisitive, hungering for truth. What they want from us as parents is honest, well-informed answers to their questions, and our very lives should reflect the things we say so that the teacher and the truth taught will be of the same pattern. Daniel Webster once said, if we work upon marble, it will perish. If we work upon brass, time will efface it. If we rear temples, they will crumble in dust. But if we work upon immortal souls, if we imbue them with principles, with a just fear of the Creator and love of fellow men, we engrave upon those tablets something which will brighten all eternity. Sister Stone and I are the grandparents of 16 grandchildren, and we can assure you there is nothing in the world more dear to our hearts. We are most grateful for the efforts being made by their parents to bring them up properly. Now I encourage you young people to draw close to your parents. Let them help you direct your lives toward righteousness. The greatest blessings of this life are available to each of us only when we keep the commandments the Lord has given us. And the blessings promised are not just for this life only, but also for all eternity. Our prophet and leader today, President Spencer W. Kimball, has told us the price of happiness is to keep the commandments of God. On Judgment Day, would any of you parents want to be told that you failed to do your part, that you were unworthy servants of the Lord because your lives were poor examples to the spirits he entrusted to your care? To paraphrase an admonition the Lord has given us, let your light so shine before children that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. As we and our children live the gospel, we make ourselves worthy to receive this great promise recorded in the Doctrine and Covenants. And if you keep my commandments and endure to the end, you shall have eternal life, which gift is the greatest of all the gifts of God. What a glorious promise, eternal life. And it will be ours if we keep the commandments and endure to the end. The Lord always keeps his promises. Remember that he says in the Doctrine and Covenants, I, the Lord, am bound when ye do what I say, but when ye do not what I say, ye have no promise. May we all live to bring this promise of eternal life to ourselves and our family. Such wonderful blessings are within our grasp if we live righteous lives. I so testify in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.